From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. In 2021, two Jesuits who had just been ordained priests were missioned to serve migrant communities on the U.S.-Mexico border in Brownsville, Texas. Soon after they arrived, Father Brian Strasberger and Father Louis Hotop agreed that there were so many incredible people and stories they were encountering that they just needed to share this stuff with the world through a podcast. They asked our communications team here at the Jesuit Conference for help producing it, and the result has been one of the most inspiring podcast series I've ever heard. It's called the Jesuit Border Podcast, and I'm thrilled to be featuring one of their recent episodes here on our AMDG feed. In this episode, Father Louis and Father Brian shift from interviewers to interviewees. Asking the questions this time around is the great Jesuit author Father Jim Martin, who leads Louis and Brian through an Ignatian examine of their ministry in Brownsville over the past two years. It's a fabulous interview with so much vulnerability and insight, and it's a great place to start even if you haven't heard the Jesuit Border Podcast before. The stories I hear on the Jesuit Border Podcast, they make me so proud to be Catholic. So be sure to subscribe to the Jesuit Border Podcast wherever you listen, and thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Louis Hotop. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests missioned to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast highlights some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs along the border. The Jesuit Border Podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Let's begin. Vamos! In this episode, we're going to talk about the examen. We will be switching things up this week. Instead of conducting an interview, we will be getting interviewed by Father James Martin, who is a Jesuit priest who works at America Magazine and has a podcast on the Ignatian Examen. So in this episode, he'll lead us to reflect on our nearly two years of ministry here on the border. Enjoy. We are thrilled to welcome to this season finale Father James Martin. He is a Jesuit priest, a best-selling author, and editor-at-large of the Jesuit magazine America. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, Great to be with uh, two of my favorite Jesuits. Well, that's uh, maybe overstating it a bit, but uh, (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. It's a good way to lead. So we thought maybe just to start off this episode before you start firing questions away at us to review our time in ministry down here along the border, you could start by explaining to the audience a little bit about the Ignatian examination of consciousness. 
Yeah. And uh, before I do that, though, I do want to say why you're two of my favorite Jesuits, not just because of you uh, individually and personally, but I just think you're doing wonderful work down there. And I just want to congratulate you and thank you on behalf of all your Jesuit brothers. And I know so many of your listeners are admiring of you. So I just want to recognize that you're doing great work and uh, you're in everybody's prayers. Thank you. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. So speaking of prayers, uh, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to take you through a little bit of an examine today. Now, I know that we, the first uh, little uh, hiccup is that we pronounce it a little differently. I know you guys, you <laughs> guys say the examen, examen, right? Examen. St. Louis' hard A, is that right? Yeah, yeah. the hard A. That's, that's <laughs> like right. Mom. So I say, I say the examine. So for you listeners, we're talking about the same prayer. Um, yeah, it's basically, it's a, it's a beloved prayer in Jesuit spirituality. It's essentially a review of the day. Um, but here we're kind of reviewing uh, your ministry. And uh, it starts out with um, obviously just placing yourself in God's presence, um, uh, being grateful for things that have happened in the day, and then kind of uh, tracing back uh, the day from, you know, when you get up to morning to lunch to afternoon to dinner, and just kind of seeing where God is present. Um, and then, you know, maybe a little things you regret and kind of asking for grace for the next day. The examine helps us see where God has been, which is helpful for people. It's like it's a really kind of easy prayer, but a very powerful prayer. So what I'm going to do today, um, and uh, Louis and Brian have invited me to do this, is kind of take them through an examine uh, on their ministry. So are we ready to start, guys? I let's, think we're ready. Let's do it. Fire away. Okay, fire away. So uh, basically, you know, the examine is all about looking back. So can you give us uh, like a, a little bit of a refresher on how you got started in your ministry on the border and, you know, just what your mission is? Sure, yeah. It's it's amazing to think back at this point that we've been here almost two years and that this was our first mission as priests. So we were ordained in June of 2021, invited by our provincial to come to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas, where Jesuits had, up to that point, never had any kind of permanent presence. And we met with the bishop who basically gave us our mission that we've followed since that day, which was to read the reality and respond to it. And so we started helping out at a couple of local parishes, but our focus quickly evolved to migrant ministry. And, you know, just beginning that ministry, we started we started going to the HRC and working with migrants who had just crossed the border into the U.S. At a, uh, and were coming to this respite center to get the basic things that they need to maybe rest for a few days and then continue on to other parts of the country to be finally reunited with their family, some of them being separated for, for decades from their parents, from their siblings. And so being a part of that was, was one way of deepening our experience of of the migrant reality. But then slowly we started seeing the numbers decreasing there and shifted our focus across the border to Reynosa, Mexico, where there was a, a plaza uh, at one point of about 2,500, 3,000 people all packed into this very, very small space. So we started developing relationships there and and it's kind of, it's it's really uh, grown since then into, into a pretty robust ministry on both sides of the border, uh, focusing on the shelters especially. Well, it's such great work. And of course, so in keeping with, you know, not only uh, Jesus's uh, call to stand with the stranger and Catholic social teaching, but also the Jesuit call uh, in our universal apostolic preferences to walk with the excluded. And, you know, you can think of a few people that are excluded as much. Just for the, the listeners who may not know, um, like, what's your living situation? Are you, are you in a parish or maybe can you describe that a little bit? 
Yeah, when we first started, we had to rent a house uh, because there hadn't been an established uh, community, which was a very new experience for both Louie and I. As Jesuits, you usually arrive to an assignment and they <laughs> give you the house key. They tell you where the chapel is and the car <laughs> sign out and you, you start right. work. <laughs> it was kind of exciting. We went to like Bed Bath & Beyond and got to buy pots <laughs> and pans <laughs> and everything. Filled up like multiple carts. It was like, holy cow. I mean, and we're, you know, also like Jesuits, we don't move with a moving truck. We move with suitcases because you basically just bring your clothing and personal items. Well, we had to, you know, set up a house from scratch more or less. And that was how we kind of got by in our first year. But now the second year we moved into a house that was built by the Marist priests at a parish that they had staffed that we've been helping out at San Felipe de Jesus, which is in Cameron Park, one of the original colonias of Brownsville, which is to say kind of an underdeveloped community that when it first started in the 90s, it was like dirt streets and people using outhouses uh, behind their behind their houses. But through a lot of advocacy and work by the Marists and other members of the community, now it's, you know, it's got pavement and a, a much more and, and public utility utilities and things like that is much more established. But we live in a very humble home there that was built by religious for religious and is now housing the three of us Jesuits that are here uh, permanently. That's great. Um, by religious, for religious, and uh, now uh, including religious. Um, yeah. <laughs> so two years of ministry um, in the uh, in the exam, we start with, as I said, gratitude. Um, so as you look back, um, what are things, some things that come to mind that you're really grateful for uh, in your ministry? I think, you know, the biggest thing that comes to my mind when I think about what I'm grateful for is uh, really the opportunity to work with another Jesuit, to work with Brian, to, to, to really collaborate on something and start something new and be creative and, and find different ways of doing it. I, you know, in so many uh, Jesuit works were attached to an institution. Those institutions come with histories and traditions, and this is the way we've always done things, and this mm-hmm. is how it must be. And we had none of that. You know, and it's something exciting to start with, with something fresh, and to do so together, uh, and to collaborate, and and be invited to be creative, and 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 to make a lot of mistakes. You know, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way, just you know, trying things out, and then seeing, like, gosh, that doesn't that doesn't work, and. It's been it's been one of the most amazing things I've been a part of as a as a Jesuit to be able to collaborate so closely uh, and to go through this experience together. Well, shoot, I was going to I was going to say I was going to say Louis. <laughs> I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to say for this question. I mean, it's true. I mean, we're working together with another young Jesuit uh, who's a who's a hard, dedicated worker and also a good friend. Uh, it does, you know, it, it can be tough. I mean, we work together a lot. I mean, not only on this podcast, but literally all the things that we do down here. And so, if that relationship wasn't a good and healthy one, both where we could disagree and get upset at each other, but then also inspire one another daily with the things that we do, I don't think it would have worked so well. I can't imagine you would disagree on anything. You're both Jesuits, right? You think the same. <laughs> Two Jesuits, three opinions. <laughs> exactly. You know, when you were talking about starting uh, something from scratch, was there is there any fear there? Because I know a lot of people might think, boy, you know, I, I wouldn't know what to do. Was was there a sense of fear or trepidation at the beginning? Every, every 
day. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, there's a fear that like there there's a lot of pressure. You know, we've been we were given an experimental situation and in a place that is is really high tension. You know, there's mm. a lot of people carrying a lot in this environment. There's the migrants themselves. There's the other NGOs. There's all the groups on both sides of the border. And I think, you know, trying to just throw yourself in the middle of what really is a big storm uh, can be can feel intimidating. Of course, once you're in it, that's a different reality. You know, once once mm. there's a person in front of you, a family in front of you, once the once you see, you know, okay, this person, all they really need right now is someone to sit and listen to them. They're mm -hmm. not asking for much more than that. And I think that totally changes it. I still feel nervous, like getting up and celebrating mass for a room full of people at one of the shelters. And yet, like once you're in it, it's so freeing, you know, They're, they they want you to succeed, too, because it's this 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 time is such an important moment for us to give thanks to God, to celebrate as many blessings and then to really ask for his his presence. So. There's something very powerful, I think, about feeling that sense of nervousness and then also feeling it wash away once once you're actively engaged in it. And I, and I would say, to be honest, uh, more, more so than fear, I would say I felt empowered and in, in a remarkable way. I mean, for two young priests in their first mission to be trusted to go to a new place and start something mm. new, and even for the bishop here, Bishop Flores, who's been so good to us to be open to us responding to the needs as we see and discern them, and for him to say, that's why I want Jesuits here, because I think that's what you're good at, and that's what I'd ask you to do, is to read the reality and respond to it. Mm. I mean, I just couldn't believe how how empowered we were. It wasn't like we were sent as like the third or fourth priest at a thriving Jesuit parish and asked to right. do just some sacramental ministry. Not that there's, that can be a great experience and a very easy way to, uh, you know, practice the sacraments, for example, but to kind of be thrown into this experience, it was like, wow, who are, who are we to be so trusted by our superiors and even our local mm. bishop to engage in this? Yeah. And I mean, if you went to a, a community that had already been established, you might be, you know, arguing over like, may I have this kind of cereal? You know, <laughs> we, still, we still argue about that. <laughs> how, how many well, milks are in our fridge? Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like, you know, a, a good deal of your gratitude is is surrounding not only uh, the, the joy of working with one another, but also the newness of the ministry and the fact that God has asked you to start something new. And that's beautiful. Well, you know, uh, the next part of the examine is really noticing God's activity in our lives. And normally we'd kind of cast our mind back over the day. Um, but as you, and, and think about different stories, um, how about for you, are there any people or stories that you think about uh, that highlight God's activity over the last two years? What, what, what comes to mind for both of you? You know, I go back to those days when we crossed back over, when we crossed over into the plaza when, you know, it's our first time going over and we see just this, this community that has formed in a plaza of migrants, but it, it almost seemed impermeable. We, we spent a lot of time on just on the outside, not really knowing the system. And we would bring, we had a little like beach cart that we would bring across and filled it with like toothpaste and toothbrushes or used clothing 
And we tried to set up systems where it's like, okay, you, Brian, stand on this side of the street and get people to form a line because everybody wants these access to these resources. Get everybody to form a line and then I'll be on the other side of the street and one by one we'll receive people just to like maintain control. Very German. (laughs) How do we maintain control? And uh, those systems really did not work. And it became clearer and clearer that the way we were imagining that was that somehow by implementing a system of our own, we were going to succeed in this mission. Well, mm-hmm. quickly we realized there were systems already in place mm-hmm. in the environment. And a woman from uh, Medico Sin Fronteras, the Doctors Without Borders, came up to us and uh, she was like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but there are kitchens here in the camp. <laughs> and often when people bring donations, they bring them through the kitchens where we were like, what? <laughs> Say what? <laughs> and so then we were introduced to these, you know, to these women uh, in one of the kitchens in Carpa Maria, the 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 yellow tent, and uh, and that's where it all started. I mean, that's that's where we were shown a completely different way to minister to people. It wasn't no longer about like bringing things and being the star of our own show and handing out uh, donations one by one, right. but actually trusting the system that the migrants had come up with themselves, trusting what they were able to offer, and really empowering them to take charge. So we would go and now drop it off at these different kitchens and and collaborate with them to dispense it to people who they knew were really in need. And I would say that moment where this this woman from Doctors Without Borders came up to us was a real God moment. You know, mm-hmm. it was a real intervention where God's like, yeah, you you have good intentions. You know, you're <laughs> mm-hmm. you you've got a good heart. That's nice. Thank you. And here's a better way to do that. And it was a completely opening experience for us, a, a good learning experience. Well, it's very humbling too. I mean, I, I worked in East Africa for two years with refugees and I had some of those same experiences. It's a, it's a humbling thing. And it's also, it shows your own humility to be able to accept that. Right. And to say, look, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a part of this, right? This is not, it's not all about me and how I want to do it. So that's a great memory. Um, how about you, Brian? Anything come to mind? Absolutely. You know, that I'm just reminiscing about that whole experience as we got started in the plaza. And, and really, our first steps were humanitarian aid of, of bringing these donations. But we knew from the start there, like, is there any way for us to do sacramental ministry? Can, can, like, can we celebrate a mass somewhere mm-hmm. here? And I remember the first time that we celebrated a mass about a month after arriving there. And it was just there was one part of the plaza that had a couple of cafeteria tables under a larger tent. And it was probably the biggest covered meeting space. And it gets very hot down here in the valley. And so we didn't want to be outside where it's everyone's in the sun and having to stand up. So, but the first time we celebrated mass there, we'd ask the uh, Yasmin who ran that kitchen, could we just use a part of one of the tables and do the mass here? She said, yeah, of course, of course, of course, you can connect to our our electricity for your speaker. And we set up and we basically just said to everyone who was sitting there enjoying their coffee or just enjoying a seat Mm -hmm. in the shade, we're like, we're just going to celebrate mass here. So you can participate or not or leave if you want to or Mm -hmm. stay. And and we just did it for that small, humble audience of people who mm. were there. And that was that was the first entryway into that. Well, fast forward about six months later, and we got to Holy Week. Uh, and Holy Week last year was just one of the seminal moments of, of my faith life and my relationship with God. I mean, it was 
just so incredibly moving. We had gone from that, we celebrate Mass at this table with whoever's sitting here, to having formed a community of Catholics who had found out that we would come twice a week and celebrate Mass. And they self-organized. They had a choir that would rehearse different days. They had an altar server that would like bring up the, the cross in this like entry procession, if we can call it that. We had lectors. We had people, uh, Eucharistic ministers. I mean, it was, unbelievable. it was like we'd created this like mini parish. And it wasn't a large mm-hmm. community. It was 40 to 50 people let's say. And, uh, you know, so much of the celebration of the Triduum was so special, but just to highlight one moment for me was uh, the Stations of the Cross on Friday, on Good Friday, where the first thing we did was invited who would like to be the first one to carry uh, the cross for us as we begin to go around the plaza for the stations. And I was expecting one of the adult leaders uh, to raise their hand, but the first hand that shot up was a young 10-year-old girl. And I thought, well, wow. well, sure, why, why not? Why couldn't it be mm-hmm. her? And so we had her carry the cross for that first station. And then all the kids, all the children wanted to be the one to carry the cross. So we had these kids. You just think about what their experience is and, and all that they've gone through and, and living in, in a tent uh, here in the plaza for now months at a time carrying that cross. And the other part of it that was beautiful uh, was how our community grew. Like with every mm. station as we walked around the plaza, people mm. who who hadn't come to our mass, who maybe didn't know that we what corner of the plaza we were in and weren't connected, there was like something that spoke to them. And this crowd just kind of grew. More and more people joined in with us. There was a there was a Haitian population that had started arriving, and all of a sudden we had all these Haitians that were joining in with us too. And our our, our procession that started with probably forty or fifty people ended with a couple of hundred people as we made our way around the plaza, a place that I think represented to me so much the passion of Christ in terms of the suffering of the people there, but also the resilience. Those are beautiful stories and, you know, really signs of God's presence with you, right, uh, through the people. And, uh, boy, it really is something hearing about uh, young people. Care. I mean, they're already carrying the cross, right? And I'm sure that kind of crossed your mind. Um, so these beautiful experiences of newness and companionship and God's presence in the people. But, of course, part of the examine is also acknowledging our faults and our failings. And, you know, Louis talked about this a little bit at the beginning um, are there any regrets or mistakes that have kind of brought you sorrow to sorrow and led you to ask for forgiveness on moments where you would have responded a little differently? So what would, I mean, it might be painful to talk about, but things that you regret or even, even kind of things that you think were a little bit sinful, um, you know, in the past two years, what would you say? You know, one, one, um, yeah, something that comes to mind that I still, you know, it's become a part of my prayer because, you know, I still carry it. Uh, there's, there are a couple camps and a couple shelters in Reynosa where we mostly have been focused during this time. And after the plaza, the plaza had been broken up. Some people had been able to cross into the U.S. and many others were moved into uh, the different shelters. And so people who've listened to the podcast know about that whole process. But but just to say that different shelters and camps began to emerge in Reynosa and the plaza now is completely empty. Um, and so we started focusing on Casa del Migrante, which is run by the Daughters of Charity in, in Reynosa, and then also Senda 2, which was a new shelter that was housing 2,000 people. So it was it was in desperate need of supplies, and so we started focusing ourselves there. Well, a third camp had emerged called the Rio Camp, which was mostly Haitian uh, migrants. Mm. And I think just because, you know, we had we had invested in these two other places in Casa del Migrante and in Senda 2, 
we really decided, okay, we'll stay focused on that. Hearing kind of whispers about the situation in the Rio camp and hearing, you know, about the conditions there, but never actually visiting it. Now it's not really that far away. We pass by it every time that we go into Senda 2. So, you know, it was only about a month ago that we finally got there. You know, we finally went and visited the people there. And the conditions there are some of the worst I've ever seen. You know, it's the the conditions that people are living in there, the 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 impact of those conditions on people's psyche, on people's emotional health, on their sense of community was was some of the just some of the most depressed I had I had ever mm-hmm. seen. It was really a kind of hell, you know, that we walked into. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure if you spent more time there, you could see the beauty of it. But just in that first experience, it was it was definitely something very hard to to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have regrets about that. You know, I have regrets. I, I I don't know how much more we could really do. You know, is the question. I don't know how much more we could really add to to our ministry. And yet, I do have a sense that, gosh, if we had picked our heads up out of the mm-hmm. sand just for ten minutes, maybe we could have found a way to to place ourselves here. You know, even even if just for you know a few hours every month or something like that, just to to have the experience of accompanying people in that environment, but also to offer what we can uh, in a very challenging space. So I, I do carry some, some mm. not guilt, uh, well, probably guilt. <laughs> I'm Catholic <laughs> after all. But, you're Catholic, uh, yeah. you're Catholic after all. <laughs> but, um, but also a deep sense of sadness about that. So the, is the sadness, I, I, I wish I could have helped them more, or I should have spent more time with them, or I kind of ignored them. Is that is that where it comes from? Or I think the sadness is that this this place too has something in a maybe in a selfish way, but like God is there, you know, mm. and God is trying to offer us something through these people and trying to mm-hmm. invite us into this space to to give something back, but also to receive mm. a lot more. And mm-hmm. there's a certain sadness of not not plumbing the depths of that yeah. and not not um, not seeking God maybe as as we ought to have. Yeah, and part of it, I'm not your spiritual director, but part of it is also, you know, saying there's only so much you can do. Right. You know, my current spiritual director always says uh, there's good news and there's better news. Do you know this one? Mm-hmm. There's, the good news is that there is a Messiah. The better news is it's not you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so... That's right. So it, it, it is, yeah, I mean, and it, it, you know, I mean, it's a holy desire to want to help people, Right. Um, but also a holy thing to be able to say, you know, I, I can't, I can't help everyone, right? One of the things I find um, helpful is that so I don't know where I heard this first that um, that even when Jesus left Galilee and Judea when his public ministry was over, there were still some sick people there, you know, and he didn't physically heal everybody. Um, he dealt with the person in front of him. Which I always find really kind of beautiful. Um, he, he, you know, he didn't de- heal every single leper in Galilee and Judea, you know. And so there was a kind of humility about his ministry as well. Um, thanks for sharing that. How about you, Brian? Any any fa- faults, failings, sins that you kind of think about? It really is in a similar vein. You know, I think of the Jesuit theologian Jim Keenan, the ethicist, who says mm. that sin is the failure to bother. And so what I'm always 
I'm not going to say haunted by, but certainly what comes to mind when I think about this is what are those moments where maybe maybe I just failed to bother to the person right in front of me. So I think about a recent story, uh, Maria, who I met from El Salvador, who was in Casa del Migrante, and she had uh, just this heartbreaking and complicated story that I was having trouble tra- uh, tracking, but, but components of it were her being an informant for the DEA after being sex trafficked herself, being deported in the midst of that, and now being in northern Mexico, and just looking for a lifeline from anyone. And she gave me a couple of phone numbers that she asked me to call to try to kind of investigate her case and see if some things could be done. And I sat there and I listened and my heart was breaking. And I was also sitting there thinking of the 50 other things I had to do the rest of that day. And it came back to me later that evening. It was like, oh, yeah, I didn't make any of those phone calls. I haven't done any follow up with that. And I think it is true that we we can't help everyone all the time. And I know that, but it's a question I'm always asking myself, you know, it's like, Ooh, was that, was that someone that Jesus was inviting me to have a a fuller encounter and a fuller response to, or was this someone that I kind of just failed to bother with their situation because I felt just too overwhelmed with other things that were on my plate? Was that something that needed to take priority that the spirit was leading me to and that I rejected? You know, sometimes we have sins that we commit because we do bad, but, but I'm always, uh, you know, I, I appreciate, I think, James Keenan, like the spirit of it is to say, like, we just have to recognize we're all broken. We're all sinners. Like mm. never think, okay, you do this great migrant ministry. So you, you guys are just amazing and you're great. It's like there, there are moments of failure in every, every day that we're down here. Mm. And that's not to beat ourselves up about. It's just to respond in our ministry with a spirit of humility, that we are imperfect mm. vessels uh, doing what we can led by the spirit, uh, but not self-righteous. Well, and both of you have talked about uh, um, sort of finding God there already. Um, a little bit of a sort of a, not a trick question, but a surprise question maybe. Where have people uh, ministered to you? Where have the migrants ministered to you? Can you think of examples of your feeling, wow, you know, I'm, I'm actually the recipient now of uh, God's love? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, the easiest answer would be every time we pull into Casa del Migrante in Reynosa, because uh, that's that's a shelter that's got about 200 people in it, and mostly women and children and family units. And as soon as our vehicle pulls in, just a, a, a rush of small children between the ages mm-hmm. of like four and 12 come running. And it's like, but the padres, los padres, los padres vienen, los padres. <laughs> and they come and, and and it's just as hard to leave because they're crowding around the car mm-hmm. and saying, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. Uh but certainly that first moment, every time we pull in there, it's just incredible the way it fills me up and says, okay, mm-hmm. like, let, let's, let's do this. This is why we're here. And, and that feeling of being loved, their own affection uh, and energy is, is a great thing that fuels me. And that's not to belittle the challenges. I mean, they, some of them have been there for several months living in this migrant shelter, not ideal conditions, but the, the energy that they bring, the joy that they bring, gosh, does it fill me up. Well, Brian, what do you think they're responding to when they run up and, you know, say Los Padres and and Uh, what do do you think they see? I think uh, uh, what I'd like to think that they see is that they see God's love reflected through us. That's what Mm -hmm. we try to bring there. I mean, we try to bring a a high energy and a fun level. So, you know, that's just our personalities. I mean, we're going to come Mm -hmm. as priests and we're going to celebrate mass there for them. But also afterwards, like we might 
do Zumba dancing. Louis might lead them <laughs> in the Macarena. Macarena. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and so I think there's that playfulness that we both bring from our personalities. And we do. We sit on the ground and do duck, duck, goose with, you know, 10-year-olds. And so I think uh, they see us as 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 friends uh, as much as they see us as something that, some you know, people that maybe reflect love towards them. I, I go back to the... The time when the plaza was cleared out, it was mostly single adults at that point. So most of the families had been received uh, into the U.S. through a mechanism called humanitarian parole. But a lot of the single adults were left. And then in the middle of the night, they were cleared out and taken to the shelters. And there was a lot of confusion. People had been dispersed uh, suddenly. And uh, we didn't know exactly where everyone was. And I, Brian had been out of town for some travel. So then I crossed into Reynosa by myself, and I'm already nervous about that. You know, I'm already ner- like part half half my wing is gone. <laughs> so now <laughs> you know <laughs> it's not, it's like okay, what am I going to do? And I walked into Senda One, one of the shelters, and there were like 15 people that we had known from the plaza all standing there, mm. and just you know came to me and embraced me. You know, and mm. I think we're we're touched. I was looking for them, you know, but also I was just so deeply consoled uh, by seeing them and hugging them and and making sure that they were okay and and you know them checking in with me and like telling me the story about being cleared out in the middle of the night and it was just very much a sense of like I think we think of ministry as this top down. Uh, top-down thing where it's like, okay, the minister is is sort of blessing or imposing, you know, on top of the other person. But this was very much a sense of like, through this ministry, I am now friends <laughs> with these people and I'm worried about them and I, I want to be with them. And I, you know, I'm, I'm feeling sick just thinking about what has happened to them. So mm-hmm. I think there's that that day showed me that, uh, you know, we we have reminders of it all the time. But that day especially showed me, like, gosh, this is a mutual sharing in not just in a relationship, a personal relationship, but also a mutual sharing in the pain of this experience, uh, the pain of of uh, having to suffer in this way and not 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 being certain about your future, not being certain about day to day. Uh, and being vi- invited just to have a little part in that, just to, you know, just to taste the bitterness of that for for one day, was was a very moving moving experience. Has this experience, uh, these experiences, changed uh, your guys' image of God or of Jesus? Has that shifted for you at all? I wouldn't say it's shifted so much as taken greater form. I mean, I, we we see the face of Jesus every single day in our ministry mm-hmm. here. And there, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to miss. I mean, it's, it's right in front of you. And I see it in so many of the migrants that we minister to. And, and that's part of what, what drives us forward. You know, at a really moving moment, we met with Bishop Flores here recently, just to kind of talk about how things are going. And he kind of, uh, paraphrase for us something from Pope Francis from Evangelii Gaudium uh, about the the need for providing spiritual care for the poor and it just kind of stuck with me I was like I need to look up I need to look up that quote and so the next day I was I was actually in the gym and just searching on Evangelii Gaudium and, and looking for it and I found the paragraph and I started reading it and right there at the gym I started I started to cry because I was so moved by these words of Pope Francis who said that one of the worst discriminations for the poor is the lack of spiritual care 
And that mm-hmm. what we so often find in the poor is this uh, disposition towards faith that's so rich. And so if we, the church, want to be authentic in, in the preferential option for the poor, that has to include spiritual care. And I think that just kind of sums up so much of our own experience of the need for that spiritual care and that being a motive for us, but also the way that we see that disposition to faith so ever-present among the people that we accompany. I think it's a constant sense of being invited into community. You know, that's that's beyond, you know, I, I think there have been times in my life where my sense of God has been as this like outside force that I am mm-hmm. somehow climbing a ladder to get toward. Mm. And what I've really learned to embrace through this experience is that God is present eucharistically present in this person in front of me and i can't help but adore that you know i mm-hmm. can't help but but be amazed by that the, so much of what we do you know when we celebrate the sacraments we invite people to come up for communion and many people partake in communion but there's also a cultural sense uh, sometimes that they don't they don't go to communion readily because of, of different cultural things and different ways that they understand church. So then we we started saying, well, if you want to come up for a blessing, so we have two lines, one for communion and one for blessings. And uh, every time I see a young family with a young baby, which is frequently, mm-hmm. I always say to them, the holy family here mm-hmm. present, you know, mm-hmm. to remind them and to remind myself that this is an encounter with God. You know, Mm. this is an encounter with the divine in this moment and that this family has almost become a cliche, you know, that there are these, they, these people are on the same journey as, as, as Mary and Joseph in their migration and flight to Egypt, but (laughs) I don't get tired of it. You know, I just, I think that it's so true. I think that learning to embrace that God is present in this person, in this situation, uh, has only has only deepened my prayer, deepened my mm. sense of of God's continuous activity in our lives. Yeah, it's beautiful. You don't get tired of holiness, huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, a different kind of question. Who's a model or mentor for you in your work and in the response of what's happening in the border? Is there someone who inspires you, or you look up to, or even like a you know current day person you turn to for guidance? Gosh, you know, I, I hope he listens to this. The person that first comes to my mind when you ask that question, just in terms of someone who inspires me, is Raphael. He is a friend of ours down here in the Valley who arrived about the same time we did and got connected to us because he had done some Jesuit retreats recently in Puerto Rico. He's in his mid-50s. He's a pilot for American Airlines and is just on fire with his faith. He's got like a a daily reflections on Ignatian spirituality that he started reading. So he's kind of dove head first. But as soon as he met us, he's like, where you go, I will go. And so on his days off, when he's here in the Valley, he comes and joins us in our migrant ministry, whether that was at the Humanitarian Respite Center at first, but now it's these trips into Reynosa. And he brings such a a joy and a passion and a faithfulness. And part of what I love is I think we we create this great team because Louie and I are often focused on kind of the macro level of like, okay, we got to try to help a lot of people here. What is the best, what are the systems that we're going to follow? What are we going to do to kind of have the greatest impact to the greatest number of people. And Raphael is very, very narrow. He finds his favorite, he befriends them, he learns their entire mm-hmm. story, and he changes their lives. I mean, mm-hmm. he adopted this boy, Eric, basically, who was living in the camp with his mom, and he's still in touch with them. They're in Michigan. He's been in touch with them for over a year now. He sends him a 
ton of Christmas presents. He's a, he's a gift giver. Uh, we just had a, another f- a friend who was turning 15 in the shelter this weekend. So we took him out yesterday and bought him a pair of uh, fancy mm-hmm. tennis shoes uh, in Reynosa. And so it all comes from a tremendous amount of love and care and concern, but also faithfulness. And, and he loves his faith. He's so on fire about it. And so he always talks about like being the one behind us and I'm the one who follows the fathers. But so often I feel like he's leading, you know, and he's inspiring us. And we want to get him on this podcast sometime. I think he's nervous about it, but uh, the truth is that he is a real hero in our eyes and inspires us daily. Well, it's also, it's interesting, the two kinds of ministry, certainly when you're in that kind of ministry, you say, oh, everyone needs my kind of equal attention, right? And you feel bad kind of having quote unquote favorites or people. But I, I do think that points out that sometimes that's okay, right? And sometimes people need special attention and that's fine, right? And yeah. he's doing a great gift for for all the different people that he kind of focuses on. Um, that's wonderful. Uh, how about you, Louie? Any mentors or models for you? I think a, a recent mentor for me, and she, I don't think she would accept this, but uh, Sister Rose Kuhn is a uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary sister who's down here. And the Immaculate Heart of Mary sisters have joined us in our, in our ministry on Thursdays, and they really uh, gather people together. They, they help to animate the kids and the adults, especially mm-hmm. after the Mass. So they form a, a group along, alongside the Mercy Sisters, who also cross with us. But they form a group for women very often to do crafts or activities or have a reflection circle. And then they come up with games or coloring activities for, for the kids. And Sister Rose is, is a part of that. She's in her 70s. She lived in Chile. She lived in Peru. She has dedicated her life to, to ministry, especially in Spanish and as a teacher. And uh, she's such a humble person. And at the same time, like she's, she, she can take charge of a group of kids. So they sit down at the table and they do math problems with Sister Rose. <laughs> and they are really into it. You know, these are kids that don't have school, don't have the opportunity for this, you know, just want to learn. They're really thirsty for learning. They're thirsty for a classroom setting, the social aspect of that, but also just learning to do math, learning to read, all those mm. things. And she does it so patiently. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is so, so good. She, you know, she brings like a, a pile of fake money and she's like, okay, if mm-hmm. I give you this much, you know, this many quarters, how many cents do you have? And then they have to think about it and they, and then they come up with the answer and she's like, well, no, not exactly. <laughs> you know, but just, just the That's patience great. she has. There have been so many occasions where, you know, we're in another shelter and send a two and she just goes and sits. She's, this is a woman in her 70s. She'll go wow. and sit on the ground with someone, with a couple, mm-hmm. and just have a conversation with them about mm-hmm. their journey, about their life, about their children. And it's all very basic conversations. But but you can tell when she's not there, someone, somebody inevitably will come up and ask, is Sister Rose coming? Is she here mm-hmm. today? You know, so th- mm-hmm. it is this, this spirit of generosity uh, over a lifetime. That mm-hmm. I really find inspiring, and clearly, God just continues to use her as this as this vessel for His grace. Those are both beautiful. Speaking of mentors, here's a question you might not have expected: um, What have you learned from each other? Oh gosh! Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think i've I've learned um, I've learned the beauty because Brian and I are, are different. You know, we're very different kind of people, different thinkers, different. But but there's nothing to be afraid of in that. 
You know, there's mm. nothing to be afraid of in in thinking about things differently. Of course, we have similarities that really carry us far, but um, I think we've learned. I've learned uh, to listen to a to someone else's perspective and to mm. embrace it. Uh, Almost like, almost like good improv, you know. Like <laughs> I, I do feel like we have a good way of like saying something that might be difficult to hear or say, and trying not to take it personally, and then finding a way forward that helps us all, you know, to feel like we're respected, to feel like we had a voice, but also mm. to like really keep animating the mission. So it's like. How can I not let all these other parts of myself get so caught up in this or the differences that we might have in thinking about things and see the the greater perspective, you know, that that really what we're here for is to focus on the migrants. And so how do we do that, you know, in healthy, healthy ways? I also think I also think uh, Brian's a very fun person, a very good planner. And I think that. <laughs> That like planning out fun is not something that I'm ever, you know, I'm never, that's not my go-to. I'm usually more spontaneous, like, oh, let's do this, let's do that. And I've learned the value of being able to do that, especially in a high-stress environment where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, on on our day off, on this day, this is what we're going to do. And this is, mm-hmm. you know, and I think embracing that kind of planning has helped me to to be able to carve out a space for fun mm. because mm-hmm. in this environment, it can, you can very easily get swept up and in, in not finding time to relax. Mm. I'm a planner. Uh, Brian, what did you learn <laughs> from uh, your brother Jesuit? I mean, I, I probably don't tell him enough how inspired I am by him daily down here. You know, we, we've talked about this on the podcast, how working on the border was a ministry that I felt very much called to uh, after living in Nicaragua for a couple of years during my regency and then spending some time on the border uh, during a summer during theology studies. I mean, Louis spent his whole adult life preparing to go to Russia, right? <laughs> and for his first mission, he's asked to come to the border and, and to learn a new language starting on day one. And when he first got that phone call from the provincial and then he talked to me, he said, I, you know, I think let's do this. The next day, the next day he got a Spanish tutor to start learning mm-hmm. Spanish. I mean, that, that to me speaks to like his charism, the heart of a Jesuit that's there that says, you know, I will go where the need is greatest and how he throws himself into this. And I, it's not easy. I mean, to, to have to enter an environment every day where you're asked to speak a second language that you've had very little, if any, formal training in. And just to highlight, I mean, just a week or so ago, he gave a, a homily without without any notes. And it was mm. just so beautiful and well-crafted. And I've seen him do it in English so many times. He's a, he's a fantastic preacher. And to see him do that in Spanish freely and flowing mm. in a way that spoke to the people, you just see them responding, nodding along and feeling like they're receiving the Word of God that day. I mean, it was just such a moving moment for me. And it inspires me. It inspires me daily. And I probably don't say it enough, Louis, but... You inspire me. <laughs> That's beautiful. I mean, this is why Ignatius sent people out two by two, right? And why Jesus did too, so you could support one another. This is beautiful. Thank you. It's really nice to hear that. Um, so another surprise, uh, the end of the exam, and we're getting to the end of the podcast, um, even though I wish we could continue. Uh, you know, we ask for grace for the next day, um, at least if we're doing it daily. Can I ask each, each of you to kind of close with a prayer? Um Maybe, you know, in terms of uh, kind of asking for hope or asking for help for the migrants or whatever you'd like to say, maybe to close out the podcast. Louis, do you want to start with a little prayer, maybe? Sure. Just mindful of God's many blessings in our lives, mindful that He's present here in this moment, in this conversation. He's present with 
all those people that we encounter every day, those people that are carrying their crosses, those people that are struggling in so many ways. And yet we also know that he's working through them, that they are his face, they are his presence, they are the grace that we are seeking in so many ways, the answer to our prayers. And so we give thanks to God. We give thanks for for being here present, for carrying his cross alongside the people that we minister to, and for reminding us that he will never abandon us. He will never abandon his people, and that all of us are called to, to embrace him, to embrace this world, and to embrace one another. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this conversation, and even more so for the gift of this ministry. We pray that we can continue to be led by your Holy Spirit, that it might guide us in the work that we do and the people we accompany and the way we respond to them. We pray for all those in need, especially those here along the border, those who carry their cross daily, that just as they share with you in the suffering of your passion, they might also join with you in the glory of your resurrection, not only in the next life, but in this one as well. We pray also for a change in the hearts of those who uh, make policy for our border, that there might be an openness to creating a humane system that treats people as people, a way that responds to them with the dignity that they deserve. So let's pray for a change in those border policies, that it might benefit the most poor, the most vulnerable that we as a country might uphold the values that we so often speak about in the way that we treat the migrant. We thank you for continuing to guide us. We pray that we might always be open to listening to your call. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Great to be with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. It was our pleasure. And uh, you remain in our prayers and please keep us in yours. Thank you. Well, that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Father James Martin for joining us. This is the end of season four, Brian. I can't believe it. It's incredible. It's really incredible. And, and you know, one question that that Father James left out was, uh, who is your favorite co-host on the podcast? Just a question. Uh, well, random. you know, I could... Uh pick someone, anyone who's been on one of our episodes? No, that, I mean that... like me, you know, or, or whoever, but me. <laughs> There's only two hosts, and so... Oh, great. So me. <laughs> you, you're the first, the last, and the only co-host wow. for me, Louis. Thank you. <laughs> Affirmation station right here. Toot, <laughs> This podcast, as always, is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you next season on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Nos vemos. Nos vemos. Nos vemos. Nos vemos. Wow. We're really in harmony. <laughs> <laughs>
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>